tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hello, hello, everyone. All right, I wanted to kick off this podcast and series and pretty much everything with an episode really talking about how I've made this commitment to myself, to the world, that I believe all survivors. This is something that has been sitting with me for a long time. It's been something I've been wanting to write and put out into the world or shout from the rooftops. It falls out of my mouth every single time I have a conversation with somebody about these topics facing survivors because inevitably, anytime that we talk about survivors, the issue around whether or not people believe us and how that impacts us comes up. And I do believe that it is an incredibly important commitment to make as part of like a social justice movement to move forward with calling out rape culture and ending it to believe all survivors. And that I truly believe that we need to start with this as our premise, that we truly believe all survivors, that we accept that any survivor that comes forward with reporting sexual assault, rape, sexual coercion, sexual harassment, that our default is to believe them. I know there's going to be a lot of yeah butters who have all these reasons as to why we can't believe survivors because obviously this is the conversation. Yeah, but this, yeah, but that, yeah, but what about, right? All the yeah butters and the what abouters, we'll get to that at the end. We'll talk about some statistics and some of the science facing us with regards to false allegations, false reports that everybody likes to bring up, kind of get to the truth of some of this that also then still kind of comes back and reinforces my point here. But to start, why why is this important? Why is it important to believe all survivors? So the first thing is, is that ultimately we really do want to end rape and we want to end rape culture. We do not want this to ever happen again. And so in order to really be able to end rape and rape culture, we have to be able to identify it and call it out as it is and really know what it looks like and what it feels like, what it, all of the things, call it out as it is in order to be able to do anything about it. So in order to do that, we have to believe the people who have suffered sexual assault and rape and rape culture and been harmed because of it. That's what's really going to help us be able to understand what this thing is in our culture that keeps happening and causes harm and what we can do about it. Believing survivors ultimately liberates survivors and helps them with their recovery process. And for many of us, it is actually what has started our recovery process is the moment of being believed, of being able to talk about it and feel that there is a validating, accepting person on the other side holding space. So I know for me, I was somebody who kept my story very private for a very long time. There were a couple people who knew what had happened to me. Um, literally, I could count them on one hand for several years because I really did not tell people. You know, those few people that knew were either present 
kind of during the immediate aftermath of it and kind of, and therefore had some ideas about stuff that was going on with me. And so, you know, or a couple of close friends that I like tested the waters with to share with them about what happened. Otherwise, I kept it very, very private. I didn't really share this with anybody, with friends, definitely didn't share with my family, uh, with the community at large, and kind of kept this part of myself very private and underground, which I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. This is definitely not to say that survivors should report or, or come out and talk about their stories. There's no shoulds for any survivors about how to do what they need to do to recover. We will get to it at another time. I am going to talk about what I did with my story. You know, I'll share some of my story, my recovery story, as well as also in a future episode, talk about whether or not I reported this to the authorities and what happened around that too. So I think that these are also important topics. And again, there's no right way to do this. And that's, I think, the first important thing. If we can believe all survivors, we can actually learn about who survivors truly are. We know that there are so many of us. There are so, so many of us. And we all look different. We act different. We come from cultural different backgrounds. We come from all kinds of different parts of the world. We have different life experiences. We're of different ages. All genders are affected by sexual assault, rape, and rape culture, right? And the more that we learn about this, the more that we can actually help each other. And so for me, telling my story and being believed was actually the first time that I started to also truly feel safe in the world. That it was kind of this idea that being known by other people for the reality of who I am and what I'm going through and what I'm experiencing actually made me feel much more present in it. I'm truly here. I truly exist. And, you know, I, I, was able to test the waters with a few trusted people. And I super appreciate those people because they all had wonderful, perfect responses. There were a couple of people who had different responses that were either on the fence or not even understanding why it's a big deal. And those those were really painful experiences and that definitely shaped our relationship and, and in many ways ended some friendships. There were also these other people, right, that came forward with me and said, you know what, that actually happened to me too. I've had an experience like that as well. And it made our bond closer because now we had a shared understanding of each other. We we have this experience that we know deep down really what this was like and what we've gone through. And it helps us understand who we are today, knowing that we survived that. I've also had wonderful experiences where people acknowledged exactly how big and how important and how much of a magnitude of impact this has and, act, and showed up for me for different times when different triggers would happen out in our community and our world, um, knowing that this is something that could be very hard for any survivor to face. And that was something I also really appreciated is that when we believe survivors, we actually open up a community of support to them and we can hold them through these tough things that happen, you know, or when our community idealizes somebody that we know did horrific things and how much that isolates and alienates survivors and leaves them to suffer in silence. And ultimately it's because there is this element of either we don't believe you or it really doesn't matter what happened to you which means we don't believe that it actually had an impact or that it's worth our while to care. 
And we, we actually have a lot that says that it is very much worth everybody's while to care about this, not just because we're human beings, right? But also because it is taking a big, big toll on people that this is happening, right? Part of believing all survivors is that we can also really reduce and eliminate the gaslighting that survivors feel and experience from other people, right? Again, when we know the truth and reality of what sexual assault is, how it happens, how it impacts people, what it looks like, there is no truth that we have to argue about because we know it. We know what the truth is. We know what the reality is. We can call out gaslighting for what it is. It is gaslighting. It is a mechanism to strip somebody of power because their truth is threatening, right? And so we can also repair the internalized gaslighting that has happened for survivors. And internalized gaslighting is what we do when we start to doubt our own reality, when we doubt our own internal senses, our own intuition, our own wisdom about what's right about the world, right? This is when we have internalized the gaslighting that we've been receiving, right? And we start to gaslight ourselves, right? We can repair that when we believe survivors, that by believing survivors, we are already taking reparative action towards um, repairing internalized gaslighting. Ultimately, when we believe survivors, more survivors are going to feel safe and comfortable to report and come forward about what happened to them. That we see that some of the top reasons why survivors don't report is in addition to being afraid for their own safety. That, you know, as we know that the vast majority of assaults are perpetrated by people we know, there's this fear of retaliation, this fear of exposure and harm coming again. Right. There's also this fear of not being believed and being tied up in a legal system that continues to abuse survivors and um, to gaslight them as well. Right. So that the more that we practice this commitment, this principle, this premise that all survivors are believed, that we believe all survivors that they are correct and true. Right, we're going to actually see that they can come forward more and we'll actually get more information about what's going on. We're actually going to see things become safer. We're actually going to see that justice system start to change because we have more information, we have more stories, we have more people coming forward because we have created a safe community for them. It is never the responsibility of a survivor to create justice and, and safety by bringing a perpetrator to justice. It is never the survivor's responsibility to do that, right? I know that a lot of people struggle with whether or not survivors should be reporting. They put this pressure of like, well, you have to, you have to bring that person to justice, take them off the streets. But it was never the survivor's responsibility to make sure that person did not harm them. It was that person's responsibility to not harm them. It was that person's community, their friends, their family, their teachers, right? Their community members around that perpetrator that was supposed to stop them, right? So we don't want to put any kind of pressure on survivors to report, but when we create safety in the community for reports to be made without this pain, this suffering, this gaslighting, this doubt, more survivors will be able to come forward and as communities we'll be able to do what we're supposed to do to hold perpetrators accountable to change people right so that they don't perpetrate violence anymore and on an individual level just one on one right you know believing a survivor when they come to you and they tell you what happened right 
we're just supporting their recovery. This is a way that we can show up and really help be there for them as they're going through a recovery process, as they are negotiating whatever that recovery process looks like. We can also be able to support them in the future. You know, we know what what they're dealing with. We know what's coming up in the world. We can be there for them, right? It also establishes a sense of safety. We are holding the truth for them. And we are in that space for them, showing them that we are a safe person, right? And for any person who's ever suffered any trauma, especially sexual trauma, they will always live their lives in a relationship with assessing and establishing safety. This will always be a number one priority, whether it's conscious or unconscious, is to maintain and establish safety in all situations. And that includes in our relationships. This also enables healing and recovery to be so much more possible, right? That when people feel supported by their friends, by their community, by their um, neighbors, by their family members, by whoever it is that they trust, right? This builds more community, more connection. And we know the research shows that social support and a connection to community and to social support is always going to predict better outcomes for recovery from any kind of trauma. And here's the thing. Here's here's what I think is probably the most, most important thing on a grander scale, why we need to have this value, this principle that we believe all survivors We believe all survivors because when we assume survivors are telling the truth, we shift paradigms in ways that enable us to see the world as it is and therefore change it, right? So when we assume survivors are telling the truth, we can shift these paradigms that are blinding us to the reality and we can see the reality as it is and change it. This is so important because ultimately we want this to change, right? By changing this reality, by being able to reduce and eliminate sexual violence in the world, we are creating true liberation for people, right? Sovereignty is achieved through the acceptance of the world as it is and strategic maneuvering. In order to accept the world as it is, we have to really see the reality as it is. And I see no other path for us to truly see that reality, to be able to get the information we need to get, except through believing all survivors. This is the only way. Now, to move on to those yeah butters. The first thing I'm going to say here, there is no armchair expert or armchair investigator that has enough info and evidence to ever define or determine whether any single report that they hear, allegation that they hear on TV, or they hear about through the news, or they hear about from their friends, they will never, ever, ever have enough information to determine if it is false. We know that is a that is absolutely true. You are not on the jury. You are not in a trial. You're not being presented this evidence. You actually have no idea. We have to accept that reality. We do not know. When people say that they don't believe this person coming forward because of X, because of Y, because of how how she said this, because of how she did that, because she may have something to gain from this. All we are seeing from that person, all we are seeing in that doubt there is really just the individual's bias and prejudice coming forward. 
which is, is really just a roundabout way of saying it. it is just an expression of misogyny and white supremacy. That's what we know is ultimately beneath all of that. Misogyny and white supremacy tells us that people cannot be believed when they are reporting that harm has been done to them. So again, no armchair expert, no armchair investigator will ever have enough information to ever make that kind of determination. Right. So clearly all they're using is their own bias and prejudice in that moment. And that's all that they are expressing. Right. That's it. Right. So I see my role because I'm 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 not going to play the role of an armchair expert. I'm just a member of the public, a member of the community. I might be this person's friend. I might be their therapist. I might be just another voice in the world. So my role is not actually to be an investigator. It is not up to me to determine the truth of the matter. But what I say and what I do will 100% have an impact on how things go for that person, right? Do I create, do I contribute and create a community of support, of belief, validation, of safety, or do I continue to reinforce a community that is unsafe and that is gaslighting and that actually enables perpetrators? And that's one of the things that I think is so awful about doubting survivors when they come forward is because at best, when we doubt survivors, no matter our reasoning, again, because truly the reasoning is just bias and prejudice. When we doubt survivors, at best, what we're doing is just sticking our head in the sand and going into denial and being like, this doesn't happen. It's not a real thing. I'm not going to listen to it. And it just means that we are exposing more and more people to tremendous amounts of trauma and harm. And we're just saying we're not, we're not going to stop it. We're not going to get in the way and we're not going to prevent this from happening. And we're actually not going to make sure that you get good help. That's at best. At worst, at worst, what happens when we reinforce perpetrators, right? We, we end up reinforcing them by doubting survivors. Because what we're saying is, is what you're doing to survivors, what you're doing to people, what perpetrators are doing to people is okay is allowed, and frankly, not something that we're going to challenge. That when we doubt survivors, especially when we doubt survivors with something like anger and rage, and we come after them, like, how dare they report this? How dare they come forward about this? What we're doing is we are actually confirming for a rapist that not only was it okay to, to rape somebody, but actually they were entitled to treat people this way. That victims and survivors are actually the ones to feel the shame and the guilt, to be ostracized, to be alienated, to carry the burden and the brunt of the consequences of the rapist behavior. Right? So again, doubting survivors, no matter the reason, no matter the reason doubting the survivor at best is just going to be denial and it's going to interfere with progress. And at worst, is enabling and supporting rapists in their actions. So this is so, so, so important because I am not ever, ever going to do anything that makes life easy for a perpetrator. Not ever. That is not something that I'm ever going to be willing to do. Right? My role is not to do that. My role is not to make life easy for perpetrators. My role... In, in any of my relationships, whether it's to my family, my friends, 
my neighbors, my community members, the, the world at large, my clients, right, is to build and reinforce a world of safety, right, to continue to enable people to have freedom to live their lives in the way that they want to live them, to be able to do what they want, to be safe and free from suffering and pain, right, to have equal access, to maybe have even better access than what people have access to right now. Right, so if my role is to be supportive and to create safety, right, to promote healing for communities, for, for individuals, right, then I have to believe survivors. That is the only choice. That is absolutely the only choice. If I truly want to support communities in becoming safe, I have to support survivors. That is the only way to do this. All right, so coming into report statistics. I'll be honest, frankly, I don't actually think that this is necessary or relevant to be a part of this because, again, like I said, anybody doubting survivors that come forward, well, what about this? And well, what about that? It really is just bias. Even if this is somebody that the, the, the person personally knows, like it's their friend and this friend is making an allegation against another friend of theirs. And they're just like, well, I know them. You know, they do X, they do Y, they do this. You don't know what happened. You were not there. You do not have nearly enough evidence ever to say that this wasn't true. So in that, in that same vein, there's part of me that's like, it's not really even important to talk about these statistics. It is not relevant because actually like there is not any kind of threat to our community around false allegations. There really isn't. We know that. Okay. So some of the statistics here, the first thing we need to talk about is that two out of three sexual assaults go unreported. This is a huge number. 65 to 66% of sexual assaults are never reported. This is, this is how severe our gaslighting of survivors is that this many people will not report. This many incidents will ever, will never actually be heard um, by our justice system. And out of a thousand assaults, only 310 are reported. Out of those thousand assaults, 975 people will go free. Alleged perpetrators. So of 310 that are reported, so that's a little less than one-third, 50 will actually lead to arrest and only 25 will result in incarceration. So 310 reports out of 1,000 occurrences, 50 of those reported will actually lead to an arrest and 25 of those will be incarcerated. So only 25 perpetrators are incarcerated of 1,000 assaults. 25. This is one of the reasons why survivors don't report things is because even when they do, very little is actually done, right? But keeping in mind that anywhere from 80 to 90% of assaults are perpetrated by someone the victim knows, right? That, that means many of those assaults were people that the victim knows and that the victim is actively reporting to the police. They can point to her that who their perpetrator is and only 50 of those, those reports lead to an arrest. So one of the things to start with is that, and I, I enclose this, also this citation as well in the show notes, nsvrc.org um, has done a report on what we would call unfounded reports of sexual assault. And they actually studied 
how accurate our studies are about unfounded reports because we have all of these varying numbers about like how many false reports are made, right? And depending upon who you ask, people are going to talk about whether or not it's actually a credible threat to be mindful of that somebody could make a false report of rape. And by and large, we see that the, the rate of false reports is pretty low, very low. And especially when we factor in how many sexual assaults go unreported, that number is extremely low. But here's one of the problems is that many of the studies that actually report false false reports or false allegations have differing definitions of what a false allegation is, oftentimes including things that aren't actually a false allegation, but are simply an unfounded report. So an unfounded report really is that a report of a crime has been made. It is believed to be truthful that there isn't enough evidence that they can collect to advance it into pressing charges. This is very common with sexual assault and rape because for many people, the first thing they do after an assault is to take care of themselves, to survive that moment, to get through that moment. They don't always immediately go to, to law enforcement to provide evidence. There's not enough evidence or the report isn't followed up Right. And so even though it's believed to be truthful, it's considered to be an unfounded report because there isn't enough evidence. And so a false report, it means that it has been factually proved to have never occurred. Right. That the it was factually proved that the assault never actually occurred the way it was reported or at all. Right. That, that the false report is that has been factually proved that it never occurred. This is very different. This is very different than it's presumed to be true. We just don't have enough evidence to prove that it happened in a court of law, right? Because we have to have an abundance of evidence um, to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt versus a false report, which is that we can actually prove with facts, with evidence that the incident being reported did not actually occur. So what we have found by studying these different reports is that the rates of false reporting are frequently grossly inflated because of these inconsistent definitions of what a false report is, as well as protocols for understanding and measuring what a false report is, as well as a weak understanding of sexual assault. So an example of this is that inconsistent definitions can sometimes include things like insufficient evidence being evidence of a false report, which isn't true, right? Insufficient evidence is simply saying that there just wasn't evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened, but the, the report is actually presumed to be truthful, or that there was a delay in reporting, that the victim did not come forward right away, that there was a delay in the timing of the report, so it is then presumed to be a false report, which again, is not true. We know, or report of the, the assault, we know some of these more famous cases that are coming forward that women have sometimes waited decades. And oftentimes it is because a lack of support, a lack of being believed, maybe they actually did report it sooner, but they didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. They didn't get any support or they actually got really dangerous backlash. Protections for, for survivors making reports is actually only fairly recent. It was actually with Kobe Bryant's trial that um, some of those protocols around keeping the identi identity of a victim private and out of the media was actually put into place because his trial and his legal team doxed the victims coming forward and there was 
a lot of a lot of abuse, a lot of harassment, a lot of threats levied at at the victims coming forward. It was horrifying and abhorrent to the point where the court actually had to put laws in place to prevent future legal teams from doing that and the media from doing that to victims in the future. Because they also saw that that's that's one way that we prevent a fair trial from ever occurring. The other thing that sometimes is defined as a false report that's not true is that um, is when a victim decides not to cooperate with police, right? Maybe not to provide evidence, not to continue returning calls, you know, or chooses not to press charges. This is extremely common for a number of reasons, you know, fear of retaliation, fear of being harmed, you know, oftentimes police not doing a very good or ethical job around investigating this in the way that they treat the victim as well. The victim is traumatized. The victim is not going to be able to answer questions clearly. They may not be able to show up on time to meetings. They are probably going to be hiding out at home. They're traumatized. They're not able to not able to participate in the investigation. This does not mean that the, the report was false or that there's inconsistencies in the report. Again, we know with trauma responses that there are a lot of reasons why things might be remembered differently or we might remember certain pieces and then forget later, or we might forget certain things and then remember them later. This is all very common and is very normal, actually, a part of recovery from rape and sexual assault. What's interesting is the International Association Chiefs of Police upholds this definition. The determination that a report of sexual assault is false can be made only if the evidence establishes that no crime was committed or attempted, and all definitions must exclude insufficient evidence, delayed reporting, victims deciding not to cooperate, and inconsistencies in report must be excluded from constituting a false report. So this is something where the International Association Chiefs of Police upholds that in order for a department to be able to determine that a report was false is that it can only determine that if the evidence establishes that no crime was committed or attempted, right? So otherwise, all reports are presumed to be truthful. They might be unfounded because of the evidence, but it's not considered a false allegation or false report, which is essentially to say a deliberate effort on the part of a person to make a report against somebody that they know to be untruthful. So the first thing is, is to say that like all of our studies are rather inconsistent because they include data that are not accurate and not effective and don't actually uphold this definition that the International Association Chiefs of Police upholds. They often include factors generally understood to fall outside of this definition of a false allegation. So they're actually reporting statistics of maybe unfounded reports, unsubstantiated reports, or really simply of just reporting statistics of traumatized victims, not statistics of false reporting. So rates from these studies of false reporting are considered to be highly unreliable. This is part of why this doesn't need to be a, a part of this conversation is because the rates really don't matter. We don't actually have an accurate read. Part of why we don't have an accurate read is because of rape culture telling people that if a victim does X or a victim does Y, if they're not the perfect victim, therefore they're not to be believed. And unfortunately that has taken over our research. But among other things, things like a small sample size, only including reports made, not including reports not made, that kind of thing makes these numbers much, much less reliable. 
What we are seeing from these unreliable reports is that it ranges anywhere from 2 to 10%, right? That 2 to 10% of sexual assaults are false reports. So if we include all rapes that occur, including the ones that are unreported, then how many false allegations that actually occur is around 0.5% or less? Ultimately, all this is to say is we actually don't have enough information. The information we do have actually shows that the false reports are extremely low, lower than they are for any other crime. When, again, when we don't believe survivors, we reinforce rape. There is a mechanism or purpose to denying survivors' stories and denying their reports or saying that they can't be believed because one of those messages is to also say like, well, we kind of don't want to live in a world without rape. We're benefiting from that. We're benefiting from, from people being victimized, living in, in, in threat and in lack of safety, right? And here's the, the more haunting statistic. 38% of men admit to sexually coercive behavior. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not actually surprised by that. There's part of me that also wonders if, it, if the reality is a lot higher. Because it's 38% of men admit to this. And so that means that it probably is higher of the amount of men who actually do perpetrate sexually coercive behavior. So what we're seeing with the rates is that the rate of false report is really low and the rate of men willing to admit to sexually coercive behavior is actually pretty high. That's a really high number. And that, that tells us a lot of things. One, the knee-jerk reaction to not believe survivors, again, is categorically false. The science is very, very faulty because we don't have enough information because we continue to gaslight survivors the moment they come forward. The moment a survivor comes forward, we gaslight them. And this isn't just that one survivor then decides to stop talking about it or decides to not share their story. Every single survivor who hears a survivor being gaslighted, who witnesses a survivor not being believed, goes underground again and keeps their story private and doesn't talk about it, doesn't report it. It has a huge impact to do this to survivors. So again, it's what, what team are we on? Are we going to be on the team that reinforces perpetrators? Or are we going to be on the team that is working to establish more safety and sovereignty? So ultimately, what I want to come back to here, so I do want to end on a good note and not on all these boring statistics, especially to say that the statistics ultimately are inaccurate. We don't have enough information. But ultimately to say that I believe all survivors, I've held this commitment for several years now, I approach all survivors and all reports with this commitment in my personal and professional relationships. This is a value that I hold as incredibly important. Again, because when we assume that a survivor is telling the truth, we actually enable the community to be able to take corrective action and change. When we assume survivors are telling the truth, paradigms can shift in ways that allow us to change the reality. And this is ultimately the most important. We want to create safe communities. We want survivors to be able to get healing. And we want to change what's happening. The only way to do that is through believing survivors. So thank you so much for hanging in there with me today. I'm sure I'm going to be continuing to talk about this value and this commitment and all the ways that it manifests in my life and my work all throughout this series. This is something that I felt was incredibly important to start this series off with so that you kind of understand where I'm coming from, what my premise is. My premise is always, I always believe survivors. I always believe all survivors. All survivors are telling the truth. 
Thank you so much. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.